Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers and hosts, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two seniors presenting you with a journalism and international affairs collab on the latest trending global matters. This season's theme is peace, conflict, and protests. By the end of each episode, you will understand the issue at hand, no matter how complex. Prepare to hear from us and different Elliott School faculty to help with our own expert analysis. Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. All right, so it's good to be back here with my co-host, Emma. Great to be back. Um, Today we are joined by Barbara Slavin, the director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council and a lecturer here at the Elliott School. A career journalist, she's a regular commentator on NPR, CBS, and C-SPAN, as well as a columnist for Al Monitor. She's the author of a book on U.S.-Iran relations and has traveled there nine times. Hi, Professor. So nice of you to join us. My pleasure. So I guess to start off, we will give our listeners a basic premise for the episode. As many may know, there is a long history of tension between Iran and the U.S. that was seemingly mitigated after the nuclear deal under President Obama. After Trump took office, he left the nuclear deal on May 8, 2018, because he believed it was, quote, one-sided, thereby escalating tensions. The U.S. continued to impose sanctions, and Iran began to work on their nuclear program. On January 3rd, Trump ordered an airstrike to kill Major General Qasem Soleimani. Many people in Iran protested and mourned his loss in response. And on January 7th, Iran launched missiles at U.S. military bases in Iraq. There were no casualties, but Trump announced he would impose more sanctions. On January 8th, Iran accidentally shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet in which 176 innocent people died, many of which were Iranian and Canadian. They said they mistook it for a U.S. act of aggression. There have been no further acts to date. Due to the fact that there were no casualties when Iran shot missiles into the U.S. military facilities in Iraq, many believe that this was an intentional act and that the missiles were symbolic. Although, according to Al Jazeera, Iran state media said that 80 Americans were killed. Do you agree with this and believe Iran purposely avoided killing American citizens? You know, I think that there have been different accounts that we've seen. Some suggested that the attacks were actually more serious, and it was just because Americans knew that the missiles were coming, they were able to take cover, and so no one was killed. Reportedly, the Iranians tipped off the Iraqis that these strikes were coming, but in any event, The U.S. military would have been on high alert after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which was an extraordinary act in the long and bitter history between the United States and Iran. So you don't really think it was symbolic then? You think that we just had the correct, like, preventative measures in place? You know, it's possible that it was both. Clearly, Iran had to retaliate in some way Mm -hmm. for the killing of their senior national security figure. But fortunately, they did it in a way that didn't take more American lives. So is it true that Iran state media told their citizens that 80 Americans were killed? Even though that's false? Well, it was one of their heartline media outlets, and nobody believed it, frankly. Okay. All right. Uh, Another question is, Iran is considering taking a case in the ICC against Trump, citing war crimes that violated the UN Charter. Ambassador Kelly Kraft from the U.S. Mission to the U.N. wrote a letter to the president of the U.N. Security Council explaining the justification for the use of force by the U.S. government, stating that Iran's past actions required a response. Many legal scholars are saying that it is against international law to retaliate against a past wrong and that there are clear restrictions within the UN Charter on the use of force. If Iran does go to the ICC, 
Do you think they have a case? Yeah, I think they do have a case. This was the assassination of a government official, and there has been no evidence presented of an imminent threat, despite the initial claims of the Trump administration and some comments that the president has made. You know, first he said one, two, three, four, five embassies, but no one has shown any any evidence of that. And it looks to me more like revenge for past actions connected with this general. Okay. Could you talk a little bit more about the concept of imminence for our listeners that might not be familiar with that? Well, I'm not a legal scholar, and there are others who perhaps are better placed, but the idea being that there was some operation that was about to happen that would have been prevented by this strike by the United States. And again, there is no evidence. We know that Qasem Soleimani was planning many things all the time, clearly had contingency plans. But so does the United States military. That doesn't mean that a strike is imminent. So it does look as though this was opportunistic. I think President Trump was very angry when members of this Iraqi militia that had been attacking U.S. but also suffering casualties at the hands of the U.S surrounded the American embassy in Baghdad. I think that frightened Trump. He thought it was going to be like 1979 all over again when Iranians took over the U.S. embassy Mm. and held Americans hostage. And Jimmy Carter lost his effort to be reelected because of that. And this is an election year in the United States. So you think it was very political? Mm. Yes, partly. And also a way to try to deter Iran from more attacks by shocking them in this way. But it was not an imminent threat. That's an interesting comparison. So what do you think in that case then of presidential candidates and members of Congress who are tweeting and saying things online like Qasem Soleimani was a bad man, but we still shouldn't have killed him? Look, he was a bad man if you're somebody who suffered from his activities. He was a good man if you supported his effort to extend Iranian influence in the region. I've written about this extensively. We made an enemy out of Qasem Soleimani in 2003 when the United States invaded Iraq and declared that Iran was also an enemy of the United States. Before that, the Quds Force, the Jerusalem Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, actually helped the United States get rid of the Taliban in Afghanistan, did so indirectly. And the Quds Forces also worked indirectly to fight ISIS in Iraq and Syria. But it was the decision of George W. Bush to put Iran on an axis of evil and of members of his cabinet to threaten Iran with regime change, including John Bolton, you may recognize that name, Mm -hmm. that turned Qasem Soleimani into an enemy of the United States intervention in Iraq. Do you think that Trump, obviously, after he was first elected, passed the executive order to ban people coming and going from the seven dominantly Muslim countries. Do you think that worsened the axis of evil sort of by Bush and made kind of tensions even worse? Like, do you think that had a lot to do with this? Yeah, I thought that was a tremendously Islamophobic move. Most of the countries on that list were Muslim. And of course, Iran, as the largest country, sent the most people to the U.S., used to send 30,000 people a year, students, people visiting relatives. There's a large Iranian diaspora in the United States. So Trump has really been very hard, not just on the country of Iran, but on the people of Iran and on the Iranian-American community. Right. I think that Obama had a reputation of being a little bit easier with Iran. Do you think this is true, or is that more something that got kind of politicized? I wouldn't say he was easier. Okay. I would say that what he did was made a decision that 
Iran had a nuclear program which was rapidly amassing material that could have been used for a nuclear weapon. Remind you, Iran has no nuclear weapons. Right, just, they just have they the had uranium. material, they yes. have a program for enriching uranium. And, and there was a lot of pressure on Obama from the Israelis and others to deal with this issue. And so he sought to deal with it in a number of ways. There was a cyber attack on Iran, something called Stuxnet. There were sanctions, very heavy sanctions that had international support. But there was also a negotiating track. Right. And they negotiated, they reached an agreement in 2015 called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It would have prevented Iran from developing sufficient material for a nuclear weapon until the year 2030. And so I wouldn't call this going easy on Iran. I would call this solving a big international problem, a problem that Trump has now reopened with a vengeance by quitting the deal. Right. And just to clarify for our listeners, the deal you're talking about before is known as the Iran nuclear deal, right? The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear deal. Right. Okay. Okay. Just for our listeners. Also, just to cycle back to the political move that you were discussing, a lot of people have been drawing similarities between Clinton and Trump in terms of the response to their impeachment process. Do you think this not only has to do with re-election, but also has to do with impeachment? You know, that's a really good question. Donald Trump always likes to distract attention from the last mess he created. So, you know, certainly impeachment is on his mind. Of course, the situation is very different from Clinton. Clinton lied about having sex with an intern. Donald Trump tried to bribe a foreign government into digging up dirt on his political opponent, which I think is a much graver threat to the Constitution than President Clinton's sexual misconduct. I mean, if we were going to impeach people over that, then Trump has a lot more to explain than Bill Clinton does. Twitter exploded with the idea that we could enter World War III after Trump killed the major general, and Iran launched 22 missiles into the U.S. military facilities in Iraq. But we clearly are not in World War III right now. But if conflict did continue to escalate, which of Iran's allies do you think would actually be willing to fight for them? Well, Iran has a number of partner organizations that would certainly fight with them. Hezbollah in Lebanon, this is an organization created almost 40 years ago. It has relationships with militias in Iraq, with the Assad government in Syria, with Houthi rebels in Yemen. There's some estimates that there are 50,000 non-Iranian Shia Muslims who are fighting in various militias. So certainly it would activate those groups. You've written a few articles about civil society demonstrations and protests in Iran and the long and complex history between the government and Iran and its protesters. There have been multiple violent protests since the killing of Soleimani. What are they for and what is the government's response? Well, there were demonstrations in support of the government after Soleimani was killed. People came out basically to protest the fact that the United States had assassinated him with a drone on Iraqi soil in a rather dramatic way. And we saw millions of people on the streets mourning him because he was seen as someone who fought ISIS, who fought Iran's enemies abroad. But then, in a terrible tragedy, the Iranians shot down the Ukrainian airliner with 176 people on board, many of them graduate students, by the way, on their way back to Canada. And the government lied about it for three days. And this made many people very angry. So we've seen demonstrations against the government over this. Iran is a complex society of 80 million people. It has a lot of divisions in it. It's not a monolith, and it's not at all surprising that we would see demonstrations both for and against the government. Mind you, Iran has been under extreme economic pressure by the United States and other countries now for some time. And so people are very unhappy with their life, high inflation, high unemployment, and there's plenty of reason for them to go out in the streets. 
Something really interesting that Taylor and I came across while researching for this episode was a manifesto written by students at a university in the capital of Iran. Amir Kabir. There we go. Yeah. Which basically claims that, quote, the totality of oppression comes from both domestic and foreign pressures. And the manifesto calls for a return to, quote, popular politics with a government that safeguards security, freedom and equality for all. Is this representative of the majority of the beliefs of Iranian people? Is it possible that these dreams may become a reality? That's a great question. We don't know what the majority feels because Iran has never had a really free election, not in its history. And that includes before the revolution. We know that Iranians tend to vote for candidates who will try to be uh, more interested in returning Iran to some sort of relationship with the rest of the world, particularly with the West. We know that certainly young people tend to want candidates who will promise them more freedoms. But it's very hard to say what the majority wants. I think the statement was very interesting because it basically said we're in this mess because of pressure from the outside and repression from the inside. Mm -hmm. What do you think it would take for that to happen? I think it would take less external pressure. Those in the United States who think that this campaign of so-called maximum pressure is going to result in regime change in Iran are deluding themselves. Mm -hmm. Countries only change for the better when they don't feel threatened from the outside. And we have the example of the old Soviet Union when there were arms control talks with the Soviet Union when our president and the leader of their Communist Party were meeting regularly. That's when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that's when uh, the Soviet system you know, gave people more freedom. So we're going about it in absolutely the, the opposite way to the way that would help. Do you think that the U.S. is trying for a regime change then? I think some people in the Trump administration are trying for it. What they mostly want, I think, is to destroy Iran as a powerful country. Going forward, what do you think we're going to see within the next few weeks? I've noticed that it's already sort of fading from the news cycle. Do you think it's going to come back? What should we be looking for? I think a lot depends on what the Iranians do in terms of further retaliation for the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. I think they're going to continue to work with their allies in Iraq to try to kick American troops out of that country. That's certainly a big goal. You know, President Trump is very contradictory. On the one hand, he says he wants to get out of the Middle East, but then when the Iraqi parliament voted for us to leave, he said, no, we're staying. So I don't know how that's going to all unfold, but clearly they're going to continue to look for opportunities to harass the United States in Iraq and to get us to leave. Well, thank you so much for coming on the episode. This was a super interesting discussion. I really learned a lot. Yeah, super timely also. It's really my pleasure, and I love teaching at GW. After doing some research on this manifesto and on Amir Kabir University, we found that it was sort of similar to GW, or at least we felt like it was. Well, we felt like the student body would fit in very well at GW. Right. I feel like I've seen GW students publish manifestos before. Yes, actually, Emma, it reminded me, back in the day, Emma and I took a feminist theory class together, where we actually had to write our own feminist manifesto. I remember that. I remember we got very creative with them. But I also think that it's important to note, because Emma, you asked Professor Slavin about whether she thought the manifesto of that student body represented the majority of ideas and beliefs in Iran. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that like, if GW was to publish a manifesto, 
I don't think that would be representative of America. Right. I agree with that. I'm thinking maybe it depends on who wrote it. If a small group of Marxists, which is sort of what this manifesto sounds like, were be the ones to write it, then maybe not. However, like, maybe if GW College Democrats wrote it, maybe we could relate that more closely to what's going on or what the majority of, like, Democrats feel like in the the country. I think that if the Dems were to write a manifesto, perhaps it would be representative of, like, the DNC. I just think that a majority of college students, not even in GW, but just in America, are generally a lot more progressive than Democrats outside of definitely, college. Definitely. I also think it was interesting how she said that there's not even a way to answer that question because no one even knows what the majority of Iranians think because there hasn't been a free election in so long. Right. I found that interesting because I thought that there was back in the 50s. It's interesting to think that it's very unclear to Americans how Iranians are feeling about this. Although I know a lot of people on Twitter think that they know how mm-hmm. most of the country feels. According to the professor, we don't know. Yeah. So I think that's really important to note. Yeah. And people listening should note that too, that before you go on Twitter and tweet how you think Iranians are feeling about this and whatever, like, we don't really know. Something we talked about when we were reading this manifesto was what popular politics meant. What that means for us versus what that would mean for students in Iran. Because the manifesto, just to remind our listeners, the manifesto called for a return to popular politics. Mm-hmm. So Implying that there was once popular politics in Iran, which the professor does not seem to think happen. What is the definition of popular politics to you, Emma? When I think about popular politics, I really think about people voting through whatever kind of means. Like, people vote in many different systems, but I think that's what comes to mind when I think of popular politics. What about you? For some reason, I think of it in the context of free elections. I'm not sure. Like, I hadn't really heard that term used outside of a very American context. Right. So I feel like I don't know what it means internationally. Like, I've only really learned about it in, like, domestic policy classes. Right. Not really outside of that. So when this manifesto coming from Iran said that, I was like, well, what does that mean for them? Mm-hmm. Something that I thought was cool was that part of the reason they published this manifesto on Twitter was specifically to, like, reach a broader audience and tell people this is what students are feeling. Right. However, I didn't see this on my Twitter timeline. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Taylor Galgano. And thank you for tuning into this episode.